Our scripture comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, beginning at verse 14 through verse 30. This is Jesus' inaugural sermon, uh, according to Luke. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues, and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's homeland. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Thank you. 
little shorter than Tom is. The scripture I'm going to read is from the passage that Tom just read. Luke 4, 16 through 19. When he came to Nazareth, Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood to read. <clears throat> and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. On a very warm Sunday afternoon in 1995, it was June, I was ordained by the Elizabeth Presbytery to the Ministry of Word and Sacrament in the PS, 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 PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church in New Providence, New Jersey. And after singing and praying and reading scripture and having a sermon, and answering these questions that they asked me to respond to me, all eyes were fixed on me. The hands of elders and other ministers of the presbytery were laid upon me. Prayers were sent to heaven for me, and for the church, of course, because you don't know what kind of package that you're gonna get, right? Finally, after four long years of preparation, some of those individuals who know what that's like are in this room, after four long years of preparation and the prayers were prayed, the questions were answered, the robe was placed, the stole was placed on me, now I felt like I belonged. I belonged to a community of people who had prayed for me and supported me and cared for me, a community called the church that I was born into and always felt uneasy in. But now because I had a robe and I had a stole and I was prayed over, I felt like I belonged. I belonged to God, I belonged to Christ and the church. I was inside the fold of leadership, an insider. I wanted to be an insider. Never did I think on that day it would get harder rather than easier to feel that belonging. That was the great lesson that I've learned. It takes kind of 25 years to do it, but it happens. At Jesus' baptism, he was anointed by the Spirit and was declared as the ultimate insider. He belonged to God, and God declared that Jesus was the beloved divine Son. Now, on any, any day, in no way, do I want to compare my ordination, or anyone else's for that matter, to Jesus' anointing. And yet, when ordained, I realized over time that I was called to a message of proclaiming in word and deed the year of the Lord's favor for the poor and the oppressed, to be a voice 
and to bring hope. But what he did not see coming was how that message would upend me internally and collide with the expectations and the satisfactions of the faith community. One can feel very, very lonely and even alienated. You harbor the fear that your words or actions as a pastor will be rejected, that they will be unacceptable to one group and not to another group, and then to no group. You ask in the quiet hours of the night, do I still belong? I wonder if Jesus asked this while he was quietly praying alone at night. As a pastor, there are times when I just don't know what to do in this work. Not knowing my place and role, am I now called to be the acceptable pastor or the disruptive prophet? I don't know at times whether God is calling me to bite my tongue or let it loose, concerned that I will not belong with those I love for the fear of offense. In the matter, in, it, in the deeper matter of personal faith, over 25 years in ministry, this battle wages on. There are times, and I'm sure most, some of you can relate to this, when I find it hard to believe in the God that called me. The problem is I'm the one standing here and you're sitting there. That's hard. You wonder, do you still belong? You find it hard to believe not only that God had called me, but that my life and my family may not live up to the qualifications for which I was called. I'm an ordained person. It's a blessing. You belong. It's a burden. You feel like you don't belong. You can feel like you're caught in a vice between being authentic and being acceptable. An experience that has brought me many sleepless nights in arid prayers, wondering, do I belong to this? Does God belong to me? So here's the question to reflect upon. How do you go on belonging to a faith community when you don't feel like you belong?
Luke 4, chapter 4, verses 20 through 27. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. What have we, whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent, except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. As there were many widows in the land in the days of Elijah, there were many widows in the days of James Parrish Smith. It was at my great-grandmother Lily's home, who was a widow. There, when I was eight years old, my grandfather, Alton Parrish, gave me my first little organ and blessed me with the word saying, that boy is going to be a preacher or a president. <laughs> a widow by the name of Miss Maddie Braden, who was a longtime educator and principal at the oldest African-American high school in New Orleans, would pick me up and my siblings to go to church at the Central United Congregational Church of Christ, where the father of the famed African-American statesman, Andrew Young, laid the cornerstone. It was there I heard a pipe organ for the first time and how to use a hymnal. <laughs> a loving widow named Lisi Hodges, when I was 11 years old at the majority white Baptist church, that community uh, voted. Uh, the pastor there said, James plays the piano and we have all these pianos lying around the church. We should give James a piano so he can have one at home to practice. And in uh, 
church affairs and church as being church sometimes, they, they, in a Baptist church, they took a vote and they voted it down and wouldn't give me a piano. And I tell you what, I cried like a baby. But there was a widow named Lisey Hodges. She said, son, don't feel bad. She says, I have a sister that has a keyboard and I'm gonna go to her and I'm gonna buy it for you. And one evening she picked me up and took me over to her sister's house. Elsa Shreve was her name, also a widow. And I heard her at the tables. I was sitting there playing and Miss Lisi was writing a check to her sister. And her sister says, no, don't give me the money. That boy's going places. A musical widow named Rosalie Burney. She was white and Native American. She was my neighbor. When she found out that I played piano, she would let me come over and practice at her house. And when I got good enough, we would play Disney duets and ragtime music together. So far, I'm telling you about the widows who had lived life and lost so much. They lost their husbands, but they had full lives, but they brought me in. Think about that. A no-nonsense widow woman <laughs> named Mrs. Estella Jenkins, who is the choir director at the historic Mount Zion African Methodist Episcopal Church of Jacksonville, Florida, where I began my first full-time church position post-college. Everybody there at that church was scared of Ms. Jenkins. <laughs> but she befriended me <laughs> and she poured love and friendship and invaluable musicianship skills she gave to me. She modeled firm leadership through worship music and how to cultivate the church choir as a family. And when I moved to Birmingham, Alabama, I met a classy widow named Miss Bess Pentecost, whose husband was from New Orleans, my hometown. And in the case in church, you know, things happen from time to time that discourage you. You're doing your best and sometimes it's never enough for somebody. <laughs> you know, you can never do it. But she would always say, come on over to my house. I'm gonna cook a meal for you. You know, and we also shared the same birthday. So she'd always have something at our house during Christmas time. She would always remind me of the scripture. Eye is not seen, ears not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those that love him. <laughs> A resourceful widow name is Gladys Turpin from Alabama, taught me how to make jams and bake biscuits and cakes. She would say, baby, now you can do it for yourself. You don't have to depend on anybody to take care of you in that way. And at 95 years old, she watches the first prayers live stream. And she says, baby, I'm as proud of you as if I birthed you myself. 
an effervescent widow named Evelyn Starks Hardy, who had a renowned career in early gospel music. See, back at the time, with all this, you know, classical training and education, they said, he can't boogie-woogie and, and play, play, play gospel music that way. So Ms. Hardy would say, come over to my house. And we'd sit down at her piano, and she'd show me that this little light of mine you all hear every Sunday. <laughs> but she brought me in and said, hey, this isn't just for somebody else. And my last widow, I've got to mention her name. She was a wise widow. Her name was Carolyn Hester. She allowed me to rent a room from her after I gave up my penthouse apartment when I left my position at a 5,000-member megachurch in Birmingham, Alabama that she was a member of. Because as in things happened, there was new leadership that wanted to go in a new direction, different direction, and I didn't stay and fight with them. But all things that were going on at that time, my mother, who was passing away, she gave me final words. She says, baby, you need to finish school. I was in graduate school at that time. And so Ms. Hester brought me into her home let me rent a room from her, and she allowed me to save enough money to finish school. And she says, baby, whatever you do, don't give up on your kind of music. Jesus said, a prophet is not accepted in his own country. That country can represent any place where you are planted in life. The people and community might not see the call of God on your life at whatever particular stage that you're in. And at times, you might not even see that God has called you. And everybody in this place, we're all ministers. How can I be used? But I have to tell you, in times of emotional famine, ministry burnout, loneliness, and even the basics of life, as in food and shelters. It's always been the widows who in their quiet and out of the spotlight way, they saw me and accepted me as a whole, as my whole self into community. They could see more before I could see me and invested in me so that you see the man that's before you today. Thank you, First Prayers, for creating space for me that I can bring my whole self to this place without shame. We are not perfect, but in our partnership, I am looking forward to what God will do in our community as we continue to grow into the welcoming and affirming space of all God's children, no matter what your race, your gender, sexual identity, socioeconomic status, even as the widow of Zarephath welcomed and affirmed Elijah as a prophet of God. So, my question for you to ponder this evening is,
Who in your life has accepted you? Think about that. And who in your life that you need to accept that you and them, that they may walk in the fullness that God has created you to be? Amen. A reading from Luke chapter 4, verses 28 to 30. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them, and went on his way. Think of the unsatisfied feeling you get when a movie or music ends abruptly without a climax. The last three verses from Luke chapter 4 leaves us feeling that the story is unfinished and unresolved. The author of Luke does not tell us in detail how Jesus resolved the conflict. If we only focus on verse 30, that Jesus passed through the midst of them, 
and went on his way. It doesn't provide adequate information to understand the entire context. Was Jesus invisible? Or were the people blind for a split second? Or perhaps did Jesus stop the flow of time? These are only my imagination and not the accurate interpretation of the biblical passage. I thought this was just a weird biblical passage. Everyone in the synagogue was about to hurl Jesus off the cliff. A similar situation can be found in the earlier verses in Luke chapter 4 in the testing of Jesus. In the devil's last temptation, the devil takes Jesus to the top of the temple and tells Jesus to jump from it. What's similar to the passage is that Jesus is at an elevated place and Jesus is in a situation where he might have to jump off. Jesus overcame the devil's temptation by saying, do not put the Lord your God to the test. However, it is noteworthy to take a closer look at the verse that the devil quoted. He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. The devil reads from the line in Psalm 91.1, and the fulfillment of these words is completed in Luke 4, 28-30. This somewhat strange verse in Luke is closely connected with Jesus' last temptation because it fulfills the psalm passage. Being in a similar situation, Jesus shows us how the word was fulfilled by passing through the crowds without getting hurt in ways we do not know. This strange verse becomes a beautiful story because it is, a, it, because it is connected to the fulfillment of Psalm. I came to think that belonging and not belonging is ultimately a matter of whether the, the in-group members and I are connected. As a verse viewed as strange is now indispensable and connected with the temptation of Jesus, the strange-looking verse is now a verse that fits in the chapter. As I reflected on the passage, I saw myself similarly. I also felt like a strange person, just like this peculiar verse, and thought I was a stranger not connected with our church. When I first came to First Press Berkeley, I was not connected with anyone, so I didn't feel I belonged. It was because I thought my English was poor. I couldn't let go of the thought of not being able to express myself in English fluently. I couldn't speak eloquently like Pastor Charlene, 
or articulate like Pastor Michelle. <laughs> when I shared this kind of feeling with my husband, he would say, you're so funny. That was when he was doing his homework for his basic English conversation class. <laughs> I was wrong. I didn't need fluent English. Instead, I needed a connection of belonging. That connection was a person at first press who came to me, talked to me, broke bread with me, and helped me when I needed help. As time passed, I noticed that I was connected with more people. And at that point, I felt a sense of belonging. Belonging means being connected. I could feel I belonged, even if it were just one person who connected with me. Have you ever reached out to someone who doesn't speak good English? Or did someone help you feel belong in this community? When you become a connection person to someone who doesn't belong, just like the peculiar verse 30 becomes a fulfillment and a beautiful story, our lives will be beautiful too. I invite you to take a few moments to reflect on and silently ask your own questions about the passage. <laughs> 